0: LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine
1: The Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans has been foundational for Christianity and well-studied throughout the history of the church. Ben Witherington, however, gleans fresh insights by reading Paul's epistle in light of early Jewish theology, the historical situation in Rome in the middle of the first century, and Paul's own rhetorical concerns. Join us as we speak with Ben Witherington III about his now classic commentary on Romans. You're listening to New Books and Biblical Studies, a channel of the New Books Network, and I'm your host, Michael Morales. Dr. Ben Witherington III is the Amos Professor of New Testament for Doctoral Studies at Asbury Theological Seminary. A prolific author, Ben has written over 60 books and has led numerous study tours through the lands of the Bible. Ben, welcome to New Books and Biblical Studies. Good to be with you. So, Ben, let's begin with a little bio. Tell us about yourself and your family and your areas of study.
2: Sure. I've been teaching for about 40 years. I've taught at uh, a lot of different seminaries, but since 1995, I've been at Asbury Theological Seminary and um, mainly involved at this point with our Ph.D. in Biblical Studies students Um so, you know, every year is um, I teach four courses, two in the fall, two in the spring. I mentor dissertations. I write comprehensive exams and language exams for the students to take. And, um, you know, I, I've been doing this for donkey's years. So, you know, it's, it's, it's an, uh, a joy to get to, to be a teacher of the New Testament and uh, and and I've been, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, i'm I'm a Methodist. I, I mean, I'm even a cradle Methodist. My mother says my first two words were John Wesley, I kind of doubt that, but never the mind. Um, I'm ordained as a Methodist minister as well. Um, so I've taught in uh, a variety of different contexts. I've taught at uh, Gordon Conwell Seminary, which is more of a reformed school. I've taught uh, and I'm an, uh, it's my alma mater I I attended there as a um, to do my master's of divinity there um I've taught at Vanderbilt I've taught at Duke and uh, and here and so you know I've moved around some my family uh, my uh my family is such that I've been married for now 47 years um My wife is retired from Asbury University. She's a biologist and a botanist. Um, Our our son, David, is married and lives in Pennsylvania. Our daughter passed away 12 years ago uh, from a pulmonary embolism. Uh, But our Russian daughter, on the other hand, who we looked after for 17 years, uh, got her PhD and is teaching in Paris at a major university in Paris. So... We have an empty nest, it's just me and my wife and our cat and uh you know and and my students who keep me keep me busy.
1: The subtitle of your commentary on Romans is a social rhetorical commentary. Would you explain for our listeners what this social rhetorical approach is all about?
2: Yeah, socio-rhetorical has a variety of possible meanings depending on who's writing the commentary. In my case, I'm a historian, so it deals with social history, that's the socio part, and it deals with ancient Greco-Roman rhetoric. And why those two things? Because two, those two things are a key to many of the differences between the culture in which the New Testament was written in and our current modern culture. I, I like the, the famous saying, the past is like a different country. It, they do things differently there. And that's right. Uh, One of the great problems that we have with anybody who's a serious student of the Bible, reading the Bible in the 21st century, is anachronism, reading into the text stuff that's just not there. And uh, one of the big hedges against that sort of reading of the text is actually knowing the social history, knowing the social conventions, and knowing uh, in what ways that culture is different from any modern culture and and knowing the fact that, for example, it's an oral culture, it's not a culture of texts uh, it's It's surprising that there are twenty seven New Testament texts when when you know maybe fifteen percent of the whole population of that world was literate, could read and write, um, these are oral texts they were meant to be heard. Jesus didn't say, let those with two good eyes read. He said, let those who have two ears hear what I'm saying. And so we need to interpret the text in light of their own immediate context. My, my, my mantra is a text without a context is just a pretext for what you want it to mean. So socio-rhetorical is, is one of the keys that helps you uh, get into the actual gestalt in context of the first century and understand uh, what these uh, texts that we have in the New Testament are doing, what they're trying to do. And in the case of Paul, we need to understand that he was one of the most literate persons in that whole world. He was well-educated. He knew probably five languages at least. Um, and he knew Greco-Roman rhetoric, and he uses it in his commentaries to shape his arguments and uh, persuade his audience. Rhetoric is the art of persuasion. And he used it as part of his uh, tools of evangelism to persuade people to follow Jesus Christ. So that's kind of what we're talking about. On the social side, just a couple of things. Those cultures, there are five things I would say that stand out about those cultures. Number one, these are highly patriarchal cultures. Uh, It was a man's world and it was male dominated. So what's unusual about the New Testament is not only are women mentioned and mentioned by name, we have women playing roles that they hardly ever played in the larger world in which they lived. So one of the questions you have to raise about that is, what's going on with this Jesus movement, and uh, why exactly were there both female disciples and male disciples? Why were there women deaconesses or women uh, apostles, etc., in a male-dominated world? Well, that's that's one thing about the social culture that's important, but but a second thing was this: these are honor and shame cultures. And and that's very different from modern cultures, unless you're in the Orient. I mean, if you look at Oriental cultures like Japanese culture or Korean culture or Chinese culture, those cultures by tradition are honor and shame culture. And what I mean by that is that that's the top value in their value hierarchy. And so they were trying they're trying to obtain honor and avoid shame, right? America has no shame (laughs) and and therefore it doesn't understand honor either um i'm not sure anymore what's the top value in an american culture because it's in cultural chaos right now but but what happens in an honor and shame culture like judaism was and then early christianity is is that all of a sudden you're prioritizing truth uh, including truth about yourself, which is not t- typical of honor and shame cultures. The The truth of the matter about honor and shame cultures is truth is down the depth chart of importance. I mean, you'd rather lie than be publicly shamed. You'd rather die than being publicly shamed. Uh, and if you shame yourself, like say Judas Iscariot did, well, then there's no point in living anymore. He goes out and kills himself. So these are honor and shame cultures. These are patriarchal cultures. They're also reciprocity cultures. You scratch your, my back, I'll scratch your back. We'll, we'll have these reciprocity cycles uh, going over and over again. These are not grace cultures. These are cultures of you don't get anything for nothing kind of cultures. Uh, concept of grace is, is strange to those kind of cultures by and large. Now, in the Jewish subculture, grace has some meaning. But in the Greco-Roman world, that's, that's not how that world works. You don't do something nice for another person unless you want something in return. And then these are very hierarchical cultures. Maybe 10% of the population controls the economy and all the wealth. And, and therefore, it's a culture of patrons and clients in a very tiered hierarchical structure of society. If you're not wealthy, uh, then then you're not a patron. You're a client and you're, you know, you need to hone your skills of sucking up to people. So that's kind of a picture of the world in which the gospel came. Um, There were some differences in subcultures, particularly in Jewish subculture and then Christian subculture. But, what we would say about what you find in the New Testament is sometimes it's just straight counterculture. Uh, Humility was not a virtue in an honor and shame culture. It still isn't a virtue. Humility is a distinctively Jewish and Christian virtue. The word for humility means to act like a slave in Greek. Well, that's not anybody's idea of ideal behavior of how I want to be. And yet we have Jesus himself saying, "I did not come to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many." Well, most people in the greco Roman world would say, "Well, that's just weird. this person's got a death wish. you know that's that's not normal behavior that's not normal behavior. So a lot of what we find in the New Testament is countercultural, and some of it though is not there were some things about the culture in general um that it, it approved certain kinds of virtue. It approved certain kinds of wisdom. You know, this is why Paul in Philippians says, if there's any excellence, if there's any virtue, uh, if there's any of these things you find in the culture, we'll affirm them. We're not just taking an allergic reaction to the culture, uh, but the real dominant strain is we are offering a, a kind of society a kind of community that is not simply going with the flow of the the larger culture.
1: Ben, what difference would you say your social rhetorical approach makes for understanding Romans?
2: Well, the first thing to say is you need to know what kind of rhetoric it is. And in the case of Romans, it's deliberative rhetoric. Now, what is that? Deliberative rhetoric is the rhetoric of advice and consent. It's, its goal is to change belief or behavior in the near future of the audience that you're writing to. So you're trying to persuade them about things they should have already embraced or should now begin to embrace, whether we're talking about either belief, theology, or behavior, ethics, both of those things. So deliberative rhetoric uh, is, is a rhetoric that focuses on the future and uh, this is one of the reasons Paul is actually going to have a segment like Romans 9 through 11, where he's talking about the future of Israel in, in this particular letter. Um, but he's addressing an audience he's never visited. So there are some things that are strange about this compared to, say, 1 Corinthians. He, he has to, if you will, he has to be very gradual and gentle in the way he presents his arguments. Uh, and and doesn't want them to appear that he's sort of suddenly taking charge of an audience that he didn't convert. Now, there are in the audience some of his converts from other places like Aquila and Priscilla, who at the time Romans was written from Corinth, uh, were in Rome. Uh, and he's the reason we have this long greeting card in Romans 16, a long list of names and greetings and all of that, is Paul is naming every last soul he can call by name uh, in in Rome, almost all of whom are Jews who have become followers of Christ, because he's he's trying to build up rapport with the audience and and getting the majority Gentiles to accept people like Priscilla and Aquila. The, The backstory is important. Uh, According to Acts 18, and also according to what we know about Roman history, uh, Jews uh, who were arguing in the synagogue in the 40s were expelled by Claudius from Rome, and uh, amongst those would be Priscilla and Aquila. Jews, I mean, there was a lot of anti-Semitism in Roman culture. They didn't like the idea of circumcision. They didn't like the idea of Sabbath. They certainly didn't like the idea of food laws. And especially coming with Sabbath, they didn't like the idea that Jews took a whole day off of work. What's that about? Right? That doesn't seem reasonable. And and then they say, oh, it's for worship. Well, worship takes about 15 minutes. You go to the temple, you offer a sacrifice. You may eat some of the meat later, but it, it doesn't take a whole day to go to the temple of Artemis or uh, you know, Asclepion or somebody else to do that. So, Paul is on his very best behavior and he has to be careful how he presents his audience, uh, even though he he is the apostle to the Gentiles and even though the majority of his audience in Rome are Gentiles, they're just not Gentiles that he has converted. They're, they were already Christians from other reasons or other places or other sources or other evangelists, okay? So he's trying to reconcile two groups of Christians in Rome, Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, who frankly are probably not even meeting together. They have their own little house churches, their own little conclaves. It's like different denominations that never meet together. And Paul wants Jew and Gentile to be united united in Christ. Um, And so he begins Romans by saying that the gospel is for the Jew first, and also, for the Gentile, now immediately that's jarring to Gentiles, because if the majority of Christians in Rome are Gentiles, it would easy it be easy for them to assume because they're also Romans, that God has finally given up on the Jews and moved on to the Gentiles as his new favorite chosen people. No says Paul. God has not given up on the Jews. In fact, the good news of Jesus Christ is for a Jew first and also for Gentiles. And so at, at, he's going to have to both correct Gentile false assumptions about the gospel uh, and also some Jewish ones as well along the way. And, and he's going to have to explain why so few Jews, if Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, why so few Jews have are following Jesus. What sense does that make? So he's going to do a series of arguments uh, on the theme, the righteousness of God and the setting right of fallen human beings. Okay, the righteousness of God, Romans 1, 16 and 17, and the setting right of human beings back in a proper relationship with God.
0: slash nbn50 to get 50% off.
2: That's the theme. And so, the arguments that Paul's going to present, uh, there's a series of them in a row. They all have a cumulative effect of trying to bind the Christians together in Rome. That's the overall intent of all the theology and ethics. And it is a very specific argument. This is not a theology textbook. For example— you wouldn't know what Paul's theology of resurrection is if you only had Romans. You would know because this is not a compendium of Paul's greatest hits theologically or ethically. It's a very specific argument for a specific perfe- purpose to unify Christians in Rome. That's, that's the function of these arguments. So he's going to make an argument that, that explains that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God point number one, and he's going to make that clear to Gentiles right in the beginning, the very first argument, Romans 1, 18 to 32, hello Gentiles, guess what, what you're guilty of is idolatry and immorality, so, you know, as Christians, we don't do that, that's not appropriate, and so there's no reason for snobbishness, there's no reason for being uh, rude to Jewish people. No reason to think you're somehow superior as a human being to Jewish people. But he's also going to correct Jews. He's going to draw all uh, under the aegis of having sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then he's going to say, and so we all need Jesus Christ. And here's what Jesus does for for all of us. He, He not only makes peace between us and God. But he brings peace between Jew and Gentile as well, united in Christ. And so he's working that kind of deliberative argument throughout in, in a series of arguments. The arguments for his case are in Romans 1 through 8. But then he's got to deal with the problem. And the problem is, what do we do with the fact that most Jews have rejected this argument? If Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, what do we do with that? Is Has God just rejected his first chosen people and now chosen another one? I mean, you can hear Gentiles in Rome thinking that could be true. I mean, because Rome was now got an empire and, you know, we're world leaders and we're this and we're that. Uh, you know, we built roads everywhere. You know, we've spread the lingua franca all the way across the empire. Everybody speaks Greek or knows Greek. And, you know, that sort of cultural arrogance has to be dealt with. Well, Paul is then going to deal with the bone of contention in Romans 9 through 11. And and he's going to say, God hasn't given up on his first chosen people. He's not finished with them yet. But here's the mystery. The mystery is that the way God has worked this is what's going to happen first is a very large number of Gentiles are gonna be saved. And then, and, and a few Jews along the way, like Paul himself. But, and then when Christ returns and the dead in Christ are raised, then the full number of Israelites are gonna be saved as well. And in fact, he says, all Israel will be saved and God, God will finally have united Jew and Gentile in Christ. That, that's, that's the argument of Romans 9 through 11. God's not finished with Israel yet. When he says Israel, what Paul means is non-Christian Israel. He doesn't mean the church. He doesn't even mean just Jewish Christians. He means Jews, ethnic Jews, very clearly. But he says, but for a time, those who have rejected the gospel have bro- been broken off from Israel. But God's still not finished with them. He can reintegrate them into the people of God. And that's his plan. When Christ comes back, that's his plan. Then in Romans 12 through 15, Paul is going to offer ethical arguments that support the theological arguments of Romans 1 through 11 uh, that that build unity. You know, we all have to present ourselves as living sacrifices to God. Um Interestingly, in the second half of Romans 11, the second half of Romans 12 and 13, he presents an ethic that shows that he knows portions of the Sermon on the Mount. He's going to offer the same ethic of nonviolence, for example, that Jesus offers. He, he quotes Deuteronomy, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. And so he says, well, well, guess what? We're not only supposed to love our neighbor, we're supposed to love our enemies. I saw a good bumper sticker the other day that said, love your enemies. This will confuse them. Uh, you know. Um, we're supposed to even love our enemies, according to Paul. And so he's trying to create a subculture, a Christian subculture in Rome that that has specifically Christian and not just Greco-Roman values. And he's going to deconstruct the Greco-Roman values that are anti-Christian. For example, polytheism doesn't want anything to do with polytheism and affirming God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is a form of monotheism. It might not sound like that, but that's what it is. It's, it's like the Judaism of the Old Testament, according to Paul. He's going to deconstruct some of the ethical values of Romans, uh, Roman people, Um Again, honor and shame, not the top of the hierarchy. The top of the hierarchy for a Christian is truth or the opposite of truth. You're not saved by honor. You're not, sh- you're not, you're not lost simply because of shame. You're saved by br- embracing the truth of the gospel that, that God has revealed in Jesus Christ. That's how you're a saved person. And the benefit of that, is, is not like Greco-Roman theology that believes in an immortal soul. No, it's a very Jewish idea. If, if, in fact, you embrace Jesus Christ, you're going to have a very positive afterlife in the form of a resurrection body when Christ returns. If you die absent from the body, but you've affirmed Christ, you go to be with the Lord. That's fine. But that's only about 2% of what he wants to say about the afterlife. Mainly, he wants to say, when Jesus comes back, the dead in Christ will be raised and we'll all be conformed to the image of Jesus, the risen one. That That's the real future. And the future is not somewhere out there. The future is down here. Because God is going to recreate the creation. And uh, we will all be new creatures in Christ through resurrection, conform, conformed to the image of Christ. So the last portion of Romans is an attempt to prepare the way for Paul to visit. Now, what we know about this is that Paul wrote this somewhere around 57 AD, but he had to make a trip back to Jerusalem to deliver the collection that he took up from his Gentile churches to the church in Jerusalem. Because Jerusalem, the problem is they were suffering from famine. And this is a famine relief collection for the saints in Jerusalem, right? But as we know, what happened is when he got there, he was uh, he was arrested and he was under house arrest for two years under two Roman governors. Uh, and so he didn't get to go to Rome immediately at all. In fact, he didn't get there until about 60 AD. And then he went as a prisoner of Rome. He went for trial before the emperor, eventually. Uh, He was under house arrest for two years in Caesarea Maritima, and then still in house arrest till his trial was resolved in Rome. So this letter was sent off to Rome, and he didn't suddenly appear. Initially, his plan was go to Rome, use it as a launching pad to go on to Spain to take the gospel to the further end of the western end of the empire. That was the plan. And he announces this plan in the letter, but things didn't turn out like that very quickly. And in fact, we're not even sure he ever got to Spain. Because if you actually read the pastoral epistles, they suggest number one, he was released in Rome before the fire in 64. Because why? A, he's a Roman citizen. B, If the Jewish authorities in Jerusalem were going to prosecute him before the emperor, they had to show up in Rome. This did not happen. So what happened is because he's a Roman citizen and Roman law favors Roman citizens, his case was probably dismissed. He was released. But what did he do? Well, according to pastoral epistles, there were so many problems that Timothy and Titus were dealing with. He had to go back east. He had to go back to Ephesus, for example, to help. With things that were going wrong, and if you read the pastoral epistles carefully, you will discover that what happened is during that whole period of time, well, there's a fire in Rome, and then the emperor is looking for scapegoats, and then he wants the leader of these dreaded Christian people, and that would be Peter and Paul, and sure enough, both Paul and Peter are are martyred uh, in response to the emperor coming after Christians, um, so. He does go back to Rome, but I don't know that he ever made it to to Spain. He, he uh, He probably died before Peter. He was, as a Roman citizen, he would have been beheaded. Peter was actually crucified probably a bit later than all of that. So, yes, he made it to Rome, but not under the best of terms. Either time, either time, both times he was taken to Rome as a captive. And uh, and that's how his ministry ended. So Romans is a letter dealing with specific problems at a specific time in a specific way. And, it, you know, y- you can't really sugarcoat all of that. You really have to say, OK, these are historical documents. They certainly have implications and applications and relevance for us, but not apart from their historical particularity.
1: Ben, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. It's been a delight. You're welcome. Friends, you've been listening to New Books and Biblical Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. Until next time, goodbye.